0: Hello everyone and welcome to the London School of Economics. Um, I'm Alison Powell. I'm a member of the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE and it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Evgeny Morozov, who is a contributing editor to Foreign Policy magazine and runs the magazine's influential and widely quoted net effect blog. He is currently a visiting scholar at Stanford University, and he's also a fellow at the New America Society, and he's going to speak tonight on the topic of the net delusion, and this is as part of um, the launch of his new book, The Net Delusion, How Not to Liberate the World. Evgeny will speak for about 40 minutes, and then I'll make a quick response and open the floor to questions from all of you. Join me in welcoming Evgeny.
1: Thank you so much for this introduction, Elson. I wrote this book uh, in part because I come from Belarus. And as you uh, may well know, uh, it's a country not famous for uh, its commitment to democracy. Uh, So as I was growing up, uh, I always had a deep interest in uh, the ways in which uh, democracy can be uh, fostered uh, in some way uh, in the country. So when around the year 2004 and 2005 uh, there appeared a lot of buzz in the US about the power of new media and Web uh, 2.0 as you may remember that was the time when you know, Hover Dean made a lot of noise in the um, American elections of 2004 but relying mostly on new media. Uh, I immediately uh, jumped on that bandwagon, thinking that uh, by using blogs and social networks, uh, it may actually be possible to bring some real uh, social and political change uh, to kind of like Belarus, but also to many other countries uh, in the region where I come from, which seem to be struggling with. Uh, democracy. Uh, so, uh, being very idealistic, uh, I joined an NGO uh, and uh, eventually became Cold Transitions Online that was based in Prague and still is, and is mostly working on media reform in the former Soviet Union, but also doing a lot of interesting work uh, with regards to. Uh, you know, promotion of freedom of expression and, and democracy. And I became their director of new media and spent three years traveling through the former Soviet Union uh, and uh, many of the you know, satellite states. So I ended up traveling through sorry something countries, working with uh, bloggers and activists and journalists, uh, doing a lot of trainings for them, trying to teach them how to use blogging, social networking, and new media. And also supervising several projects that actually aim to do real work there, you know, aggregate blogs, do podcasts, uh, you know, create social networking sites geared for particular, you know, environmental or political or social causes. So I spent three years more or less on the front line of this, uh, getting to know, uh, a lot of people who felt as enthusiastic about the power of new media as I was. So I spent a lot of time meeting with, uh, various agencies, uh, you know, and here I mean development agencies, not intelligence agencies, uh, in Washington, uh, you know, and talking to them, uh, and, you know, because they were funding a lot of our work, getting to meet a lot of uh, government people from the U.S. and elsewhere, who were also extremely enthusiastic about the power of new media uh, in uh, years you know, 2006, 2007, uh, part of 2008. I think, by 2008 I lost much of my enthusiasm uh, and started working on this book uh having understood that you know much of our work was not making uh a difference, and uh whenever it was making a difference, always the difference was not for the better uh and some of that happened uh in part because all of this um you know benign. Uh, efforts that all were well intentioned uh, by people sitting in Washington and elsewhere, uh, some of them just backfired in a sense that uh, a lot of talented young people in those countries uh, and people like me, but you know a lot of others who are actually much more involved with the actual affairs in the country and who knew something about new media, uh, basically stopped innovating on their own uh, and joined a host of these new NGOs. And new media projects uh, that were funded by various Western, you know, agencies and governments, and they stopped innovating, and uh, they became. Um, you know committed to various grants, and I think uh, that actually slowed down the market for you know innovation in new media in those countries very significantly. so many of the projects that could have taken on the gr- off the ground and become more sustainable and interesting uh, in those countries actually never did because of various moral hazards that this interesting, you know, model of economic, well, new media development uh, introduced to uh, to the countries we are working in. But I also noticed that a lot of the governments uh, of those countries were also extremely active in cyberspace. Uh, I began noticing that they were not only uh, centering the Internet, they were not only filtering access to certain websites, they were actually also very actively engaging in, you know, more proactive uh, activists. They were uh, spinning conversations online. They were working with various new media entrepreneurs uh, in those countries to build websites of their own and try to influence the conversation. They were buying technology that would allow them to you know, aggregate data and then post, post it to social media websites uh, and then try to track down uh, their authors and try to identify trends. I was also running into some really bizarre situations for example in Belarus uh, on one of my trips I discovered that um, an internet service provider uh, which uh, was uh, controlled by the government actually ended up hosting uh, on their servers a lot of illegal music and entertainment uh, all of that of course uh, was not legal uh, but everyone seemed to be very happy because you know, there was all that entertainment freely available online. You know, and to me that clashed with, you know, the, the rigid idea of, you know, authoritarian rulers cracking down on their people's access to the internet. I mean, here was he, we saw, uh, you know, a case of an authoritarian government uh, perhaps being very happy with some of its ISPs uh, providing people with Hollywood entertainment and, and whatnot. So uh, I began um, to re examine some of the initial assumptions. Uh, that uh, my work was based on and trying to actually go and understand uh, what kind of assumptions were made by people in Washington with whom I was working for three years or so. Um, And um, you know what really convinced me as I was working through the book, what really convinced me that there was something fundamentally wrong was how um, many of us in the West think about the power of new media and the power of the Internet uh, with the events in Iran uh, in 2009. Uh, as you all know, uh, there were protests uh, following the elections there, and uh, they, it was um, you know, a very emotional moment for many Iranians, a lot of them were outside protesting what, what has happened, um, and uh, all of that was very important, but if you looked at the reaction in uh, the American press especially, you would see that... Um, Many people uh, rushed to claim that uh, you know the internet was behind what was happening in Iran. They immediately proclaimed it to be a Twitter revolution. They immediately began looking for uh, you know uh, i think frameworks mental frameworks that uh, they already had uh, trying to ascribe the importance of technology and try to uh, use it uh, as uh, you know the main uh, force to explain what was happening uh, in the country. And uh, I couldn't really find all that much evidence, either before the protests or afterwards, that uh, new media was actually driving the protests. It was definitely used to publicize what was happening in Iran. Uh, It was definitely used to uh, make the story of the protests uh, much more visible. Uh, however, uh, the claims that were made in the American media and by many pundits and many political leaders uh, were different. They were not just that new media was abetting the cause of publicizing the protests. They were actually that new media was used to organize the protests and the protests wouldn't have happened if uh, new media wasn't there. Uh, and um, I think subsequent research uh, that I quote in the book by Al Jazeera, for example, Uh, They only managed to find, uh, when they were doing fact-checking, they only managed to find uh, 60 people uh, who were actually actively tweeting from Iran uh, during the protests. And uh, that's a significantly uh, lower number uh, than uh, was originally claimed uh, in many of the reports about the Twitter revolution. But, you know, despite all of the enthusiasm and utopianism that surrounded uh, these events, uh, as they were described in the Western media, uh, what really puzzled me is that, uh, someone from the US State Department, uh, actually, uh, pub- well, it's publicly, uh, <laughs> sent a request to Twitter, the company, and asked them to delay, uh, their planned, uh, maintenance of the website. Right? And again, it just shows you how, uh, short sighted many of the Silicon Valley companies are. Uh, that one of them chose to have uh, maintenance of their site when the site was used to discuss uh, political events in Iran. Uh, but anyway, uh, so someone from the State Department basically uh, very um, publicly uh, contacted Twitter. It, was, uh, it appeared on the front page of the New York Times uh, the following day. This story, the New York Times proclaimed it to be a new milestone for the Obama administration, and it seemed like... Um, it was a very good event and a very good development that would help the Obama administration establish its new media credentials, or you know, bolster its new media credentials, which were already strong uh, by that time. Uh, however, if you, and of course we know what happened in Iran the afterwards. There was a crackdown, and um, you know, the protests more or less uh, gradually uh, faded away. Uh, but if you look at the aftermath, and if you go and examine the press reports in the Iranian media, in the Chinese media, even in the Russian media, and Moldovan media, of all places, you would actually see that uh, it was this outreach from the State Department uh, that got um, credited for uh, the protest in Iran. Because uh, many of the newspapers, which, of course, in most of those countries are somehow directed or controlled by the state, so we do know that you know, it may not be the opinion of the journalists or the editors, but nevertheless um, the media in those countries interpreted uh, that uh, particular uh, communication as a way of American interference in cyberspace uh, in new media, and they basically assumed that uh, Twitter was just a vehicle for promoting regime change uh, by virtual means in Iran. And um, That, I think, uh, to me, was a very good example of how short-sightedness of people in Washington uh, has actually made it much harder to use tools like Twitter and uh, blogs and Facebook uh, to promote democracy in authoritarian states, because what followed... uh, this uh, assumption that the State Department of Washington was somehow behind the protests uh, was a crackdown on uh anyone connected with new media uh in iran uh if if you followed. Uh, what happened after the protests and that's something that I think received far less coverage in the Western media unfortunately. Uh, The government actually went searching for many of the Twitter messages and Facebook messages that were posted online. They began analyzing them for the kind of information they contained about the activists. They tried to visualize the connections between activists by using information coming from Facebook uh, and Twitter. Uh, They uh, appear to have used the data uh... in the technologies provided by western uh, communication firms to identify some of the dissidents and protesters. Uh, in the most outrageous, I think, uh, development, they even got uh, the photos that were posted to Flickr and YouTube of the Iranian protests and they published them on the state-run uh, news agencies, uh, the sites of the news uh, state-run news agencies, and basically asked people to identify uh, some of the protesters circling their f- uh, faces in red. Uh, and apparently uh, 40 people were identified uh, that way, at least uh, uh, according to the reports from those very news agencies. Um, so if you then, again, follow the rhetoric in much of the you know, national media in many of those countries, Iran, China, Russia, Moldova, um, the immediate connection between what happened in Iran uh, and the Internet was to the previous wave of color revolutions again, they involved young people, they involved uh, some forms of communications, and the assumption I think that was made uh, by many uh, dictators uh, all over the world is that uh, the internet is the new frontier in exporting and promoting democracy. Um, And I think uh, that may not be the wrong wrong assumption, Uh, it's just that um, I think America could have been a little bit less uh, explicit and a little bit more subtle in uh, trying to make that point. Uh, and I think what happened now, in particular, is that uh, life has become much harder uh, for American companies, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, in part because now they are perceived more or less as uh, agents of you know, the State Departments so of the U.S. government's freedom agenda, or Internet freedom agenda. Uh, you know, comparing uh, the Twitter revolution in Iran and, you know, the orange revolution in Ukraine or the rose revolution in Georgia. I mean, it's obvious that no government would go and crack down on the color orange or the flower rose, right? It's not at all obvious that governments wouldn't crack down on Twitter, Facebook, or the internet, fearing that a Twitter revolution might happen, you know, in their own backyard. And I think this is what now is more or less a defining force in how many of the governments uh, interact with new media and how many of them perceive uh, the power of uh, bloggers and the power of um, social, uh, social media and blogging in general. Um, as I began um, examining uh, some of these assumptions uh, uh, a bit closer that were driving this Internet Freedom Agenda in Washington, I just began noticing how deeply rooted in the Cold War rhetoric uh, some of them were. Uh, if you go and closely look at the Internet of Freedom speech that Hillary Clinton delivered in January 2010 and you analyze it very closely, uh, you'll see at least four or five uh, very uh, visible and explicit references to the Cold War. Uh, she talks um, very candidly about the information curtain descending on much of the world in a very explicit reference to the, uh, the Iron Curtain. Uh, she talks a lot about um, Bloggers uh, and blogging being the new samizdat. Uh, there is a lot of talk about the Berlin Wall and the new virtual walls, which are emerging to replace it. Uh, that that speech itself is uh, full of uh, such references, and Clinton is quite representative here of other politicians in uh, in America and some in Europe. Uh, in Europe, Carl Bildt, for example, in Sweden, is very fond of comparing uh, the current. Developments on the Internet Freedom Front with, uh, again, with references to the Berlin Wall and the Cold War. And I think we have to be very careful about um, making those assumptions because um, it's not only that these metaphors somehow limit our understanding of what's happening and suggest uh, their own consequences. Right? Again, people who think that uh, the Great Firewall of China is like the Berlin Wall Uh, also in many cases expect that by breaking the Great Firewall of China, uh, we'll get more or less a similar outcome that we did uh, in this Germany. And this is not at all the case, uh, in part because even if the Great Firewall of China disappears, uh, there will be other ways to control the Internet which will not involve technological censorship. There are other social means to control the Internet. And if you look at a country like Russia – even a country like Belarus, uh, there is no formal internet censorship, right? No websites are censored, uh, except for a very uh, small number of websites dealing with no child pornography and such. But no political websites are censored. But this doesn't at all mean that there is no internet control. The government still exerts quite a lot of it by um, either uh, harassing bloggers, manipulating internet companies that host much of this content, pressuring them to delete it, uh, instead of blocking access to it, uh, mysterious cyber attacks often strike down the websites of independent publishers and NGOs uh, and exert immense psychological pressure on them. There are all sorts of other ways which do not involve internet filtering through which uh, internet control can be practiced. So by framing our problem uh, through this, you know. Through the metaphor of, you know, great firewall, the great firewall of China, we actually constrain uh, our thinking and we, uh, I think, become uh, too optimistic about the likely consequences uh, once those firewalls fall. The other point to keep in mind here is that you know, blogging, uh, as much as I like it and as much as I think it's a good thing, is in only very few limited instances is comparable to some is that. I mean, if you look at a country like Iran or again, a country like Russia or China, you'll see that there are quite a few uh, bloggers that are more conservative and are more anti-democratic than their leaders. This was not at all the case with Samizdat and the Soviet Union, right? We should not be equating, uh, bloggers with dissidents in part because many bloggers do not want to be perceived as dissidents, right? And I think the politicization of this subject, uh, will just put, uh, quite a few people at risk that they didn't want to take. And I think the, one of the consequences of, um, you know, the Twitter revolution discourse that now is also emerging, um, you know, following the events in Tunisia, it's that uh, there will just be a much heavier crackdown uh, by dictators everywhere uh, on the Internet. And we see it partly already happening in Libya with Gaddafi, uh, claiming that it was all about Wikileaks and it was all about Twitter, and the next thing would be uh, greater censorship of the Internet. So it's not that those tools don't matter. It's that the kind of rhetorical, rhetorical strategies that we adopt uh, in the West matter a lot. Uh, in influencing the kind of country responses that many of these governments uh, embark on. Uh, And while we're on Tunisia, I think that's a very interesting thing, which uh, I think is worth remembering here, is that um, it's actually the Tunisian cyber activists, uh, many of them based abroad, who have been most vocal about denouncing any American support for their efforts. Uh, they actually explicitly reject uh, support and funding uh, from the State Department and are very actively campaigning uh, about the State Department's Internet Freedom Policy. Right? So to me it's very interesting how a, uh, you know, a group of people who have been uh, extremely critical and as critical as I am about what the State Department is doing in the space have actually been most successful in terms of organizing and mobilizing online. The other interesting thing to draw from Tunisia while we're on it is that um, I think uh, Ben Ali has in itself, you know, dug his own grave by engaging in so much technological censorship. And here again, we have to remember the distinction between so- social censorship and social control I've been talking about. Because if you filter the web, uh, you inevitably push people to start working on tools to bypass the censorship. right? And uh, the more they work... The stronger the connections they develop. So in the case of Tunisia, uh, there are actually quite a few activists based abroad, uh, who are in exile because they can't live in Tunisia, who have actually uh, developed a very strong community based on, uh, fighting censorship in Tunisia, right? So to me, uh, you know, any aspiring dictator, watching what has happened there would probably be very smart to actually lessen censorship on the internet and make sure that they engage uh, in internet control through other means uh, just like Russia does. And I think that would be one of the lessons that the Chinese and others will draw from what happened in Tunisia. Uh, You know, Once you create censorship schemes people start fighting them and that in itself creates an infrastructure which can then be used for digital activism uh, as was the case in Tunisia. But coming back um, Um, to the story, I think um, it's not just that the Cold War metaphors and rhetoric greatly restrains uh, what we think about the Internet and how we think about the way in which the authoritarian governments use it. And I think this is that later bit that we need to examine in more detail because the assumption that has been made uh, repeatedly over the last two decades is that uh, dictators wouldn't be able uh, to survive if they let the Internet in. For, you know, two decades uh, since early 1990s, uh, there was this uh, assumption that there is something called dictator's dilemma, which basically states that uh, dictators can either let the Internet in and then suffer the consequences because people will use it to mobilize and learn more about what's happening in the world and organize against the government, or they can keep the Internet out and then suffer the uh, consequences from, you know, basically being kept out from globalization and uh, suffering the economic downsides of not having the internet. And I think this uh, dictator's dilemma has shaped thinking in Washington over the last two decades about the likely consequences of the internet. It was assumed that it's inevitable that once the governments let it in, uh, the people will use it to organize and mobilize and they will discover information that has been suppressed for decades and they will uh, you know, riot, 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 eventually riot in the streets. I think the problem with this uh, theory, it still is very dominant, by the way, if you, if you go and examine uh, the public discourse about the Internet. I think the problem with it is that it just underestimates how sophisticated and cunning and customized uh, modern censorship schemes have become. Uh, I talk uh, in the book at length about the, the increasing and growing customization of censorship. I think what we are likely to see in the future is that uh, governments actually um, will find a way to solve that dilemma by separating people and users who contribute to economic growth uh, from those who don't. Uh, And if you are an investment banker uh, working in China and if all you read is Financial Times and if all of your other friends are investment bankers, chances are you'll be allowed to visit any website you want. Uh, if you are a human rights activist, uh, who reads, uh, you know, subversive publications and has other activists, uh, see his friends on Facebook and elsewhere, you would only be allowed to browse, uh, government approved internet. And I think this is the future, uh, where we're heading and that will not have much of an impact on, um, you know, economic growth. Uh, it will allow the governments to keep the internet in and not suffer the political consequences. Again, we might argue about the effectiveness of such schemes, but I think they will all be based around the uh, tons of personal data that all of us release uh, online. I mean, it's not that anonymity is impossible, it's that, uh, you know, parting with your anonymity actually uh, creates better user experience. You know you all know that the more data you share with Google, the better your search results become. You know, the more uh, data certain websites know about you, the better they can customize what you get to see. I mean now, I don't know to what extent it's uh, popular in Europe, but if you look in the U.S, for example, to sites like Pandora, which is a site for listening to music, or uh, you know, Yelp, a site for recommendations, you'll see that now they integrate very well with Facebook. So uh, you know when you uh, log- when you show up on those websites, if you're logged in into Facebook, uh, the front page is customized more or less based on your existing social connections. Uh, it already shows you the restaurants you want to go to based on what your friends have visited, and it already shows you the music you want to listen to based on the kind of music your friends have listened to, right? And again, the step from this to the kind of future where you are prevented uh, from visiting websites that your friends have visited uh, is a very small one. Right? And um, I think um, we have to be very careful here because many of these technologies are actually developed, uh, and they are developed uh, not for the use by authoritarian states, uh, they are developed to be used by marketing companies in the West. All of this is done um, in the name of capitalism because, you know, as we look at Google, uh, its entire business model is based on uh, customization. Uh, And I think we have to be extremely careful here because uh, this technology, I mean, if you look at Wall Street, I mean, Wall Street now is pouring uh, billions of dollars into software uh, that uh, basically data mines the news. Identify strands based on millions of articles and give recommendations, uh, whether, you know, you want to buy the stock or not buy the stock. The same tools are used for tracking social media, right, for references of certain companies and, and whatnot. Again, uh, it's the same tools that you can easily deploy to gauge the sentiment in the country. Right, how it is being discussed, certain issues are being discussed in the blogosphere, uh, how certain people are portrayed in the blogosphere. You can go and search millions of articles published uh, and see connections across people. You know, there is a website, uh, whose name I won't tell you, which is uh, you know, publicly available. It presents a very nice way to search the news, and it shows you basically connections between people. And you go to that website, and you enter the name of one prominent Egyptian blogger uh, in that website, and you suddenly realize that he's connected to the US Embassy, the State Department, and many other institutions just because he happened to give a talk there, and that talk was buried somewhere on the State Department's website. But now, since that website actually knows how to distinguish people from organizations, from other entities, it can actually very smartly visualize who are all the players he's connected with, which is again uh, is a technology that was probably available to the secret police, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. If they had, you know, too many staff members, they can go and spend five weeks tracking uh, what's happening and trying to visualize all those connections. I mean, now you can do it in a matter of seconds. So this is a, an increase in efficiency um, that I think we need to be, um, you know, we just we just need to know. Uh, and remember, uh, these tracking tools become more efficient and uh, as long as the government uh, that we're looking at uh, has you know, strong chances of remaining in control because of economic conditions, high oil prices, or any other factors, uh, their technology to control the population via such technologies of social media and social media trackers uh, is increasing as well. Um, I think one other thing that we need to remember here is that I'm not necessarily arguing that social media and the internet cannot be used uh, to promote democracy or bring democracy to you know countries like Belarus or at least improve the condition in which uh, journalism happens or improve the condition in which much of public discourse happens in those countries. Of course these tools can be used and you know it should be used. Uh, the question that's driving my own intellectual project is trying to figure out what are some of the traps uh, that policymakers are likely to fall into if they do not consider technology to be political. Right? And many of them, if you talk to people in Washington, still believe that all technology is neutral no matter what. But clearly since Twitter and Facebook are American companies and there has been a Twitter revolution in Iran, I mean there is no way that any government will react to Twitter or Facebook as neutral tools because they just represent uh, you know, American interests and they represent American government. Right? And as we now hear when the director of FBI uh, tours Silicon Valley firms trying to convince them to build backdoors, uh, secret backdoors in American software, to make it easier for FBI and uh, national security agency to eavesdrop on online conversations. Uh, chances are, no other government would actually feel safe, and they would not treat those tools as neutral, and they would actually be very reluctant uh, to use American technology. Right? So, all I'm trying to say here is that you know there are definitely uh, consequences to uh, being naive. About technology. And I think there has been just too much naivete uh, in Washington, especially about these issues. Uh, it's not that the intentions are wrong, right? But the way in which those intentions are presented, I think, uh, presents uh, more threats than opportunities, and that's more harm than good. I mean, no one, at least few, very few people, had um, you know, many disagreements with the Need to somehow foster democracy and defend human rights and, um, you know, promote democratic participation that was at the heart of, uh, you know, George Bush's freedom agenda. People had a lot of problems with the freedom agenda itself. Uh, because it was very aggressively articulated, it was you know, spoiled by an nece- unnecessary war in the Middle East, and there were many other things which made America look uh, hypocritical from Abu Ghraib to many others right? but again, the core intent of promoting democracy and human rights uh, was not necessarily a bad one, uh, right? but again, it was spoiled and made things worse in the end uh, in part, um, this might help you exp- it might help explain some of my problems with the Internet Freedom Agenda now. I mean, when the U.S. government, uh, and Hillary Clinton in particular, speaks so passionately about Internet Freedom when she addresses foreign audiences, but, you know, less than a year after uh, other parts of the U.S. government begin going after, you know, Wikileaks and companies that host them, it does look extremely hypocritical, it does make America look ridiculous in the eyes of the world, and it does um, handicap their ability to use new media uh, and the Internet to foster uh, democracy elsewhere. And it's not just WikiLeaks. Again, you can go and look at the kind of steps that the US government has been taking uh, in cyberspace uh, over the last few years. It is all about cracking on Internet piracy. It is all about, uh, you know, making sure that the country is safe uh, from cybercrime and cyber war, building in more surveillance power to the National Security Agency, creating something called Cyber Command um, that now defends America. I mean, much of those, um, you know, many of those steps uh, have been, you know, pointing towards Internet control. They have not been pointing towards Internet freedom. And again, this in itself, I think, creates a lot of traps for the U.S. policy and its ability to influence things. Um, So my uh, underlying message in the book is not so much that, you know, the delusion that I'm describing is the delusion about the Internet's power to influence events or make people, uh, you know, uh, more likely to embrace democracy. It's the delusion that is, I think, currently on display in many parts of the U.S. government and increasingly, I'm afraid, of many European governments um, that, you know, all they need to do is to, you know, is to express their commitment to internet freedom, and uh, you know, then do nothing. You know, maybe give some funding to bloggers in the Middle East, and things will happen on their own. I mean, how can it be um, that uh, you know Facebook and Twitter are being uh, you know invited to dinners at the State Department and are being invited to you know uh, go on trips? Uh, with the, uh, Secretary of State or other senior State Department officials around the world, when none of those companies joined, uh, the Global Network Initiative, which is, you know, is a group which tries to bring together technology companies who agree, uh, to certain commitments with respect to human rights. You know, and neither Facebook nor Twitter have agreed to join it, unlike Google, Yahoo, and Microsoft. Right. Again, the question here is why are, on the one hand, American diplomats promoting internet freedom, and decrying the acts of a company like Cisco, which supply technology which is used to censor uh, internet in, Iran, in China, and who knows, maybe in Iran indirectly, but uh, uh, and also giving an award to the very same company. I mean, Cisco got an award from the State Department in December for their commitment to innovation. Right again, it just makes America look ridiculous, and it makes um, you know people uh, just not very trustworthy of its intent when it comes to internet freedom. And I think the reason why uh, the Tunisian uh, activists uh, who did a lot of good work uh, online uh, to uh, Oust Ben Ali uh, are so reluctant uh, to take any support uh, and you know even endorse. Uh, Washington's internal freedom agenda is in part because they realize that uh, there is a lot of d- duplicity and hypocrisy and eventually America wouldn't defend them when their governments go after them. Right? And again picturing and painting those people as dissidents uh, does uh, have a huge cost uh, for their own lives and their own careers. Right? So when someone from the State Department, I had actually that experience which was very interesting, uh, someone from Google who works on their uh, public policy team uh, at one of the public events, uh, called me uh, a, a, a cyber dissident from Belarus. Right? Uh, y- there is nothing wrong with that, but I, I don't think I ever, uh, you know, signed up anywhere as a cyber dissident. Right? And having uh, people throw terms like that and to, you know, uh, project um, their own, uh, you know, frames and frameworks of, you know, if you're online and you're saying something critical, then you must be. Uh, you know, the next reincarnation of, you know, Vaslav Havel or Andrei Sakharov, uh, just because you happen to write something online and the internet is censored. I think they, they're just not, uh, likely to lead good, to good policy when it comes to thinking about whom you should support. I mean, much of my criticism, uh, about the internet freedom policy, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's geared towards trying to find a framework in which we can actually create a system to distribute resources in a more strategic and thoughtful way. I mean, we do not want, maybe, to pour all money into censorship circumvention tools, which will allow people to access websites uh, that are banned in China. If, for example, the Chinese government uh, uh, switches suddenly to, you know, harassing all bloggers and uh, engaging in cyber attacks, thus, you know, making this content unavailable to begin with. Right? If you pour all that money into tools that bypass censorship. But people attack the website where information is published, no tool will get you to that information, no matter how good it is, because there is no information there. Just like if the Chinese government asks its own local Chinese companies to censor, to delete posts, right, posted by bloggers that are critical of the Chinese government or, you know, any other subject, there is no point to invest so much money in uh, censorship circumvention tools because there is nothing to access on the other side even if you manage to break through the censorship because the information is delivered the truth, right? I mean, so there are a lot of debates which I think need much more critical rigor and have not really been sought through by many decision makers. So, you know, when you see all those powerful editorials in the media saying that, you know, we should just pour millions of dollars to build this new fancy tools, I mean, yes, we should if we had an unlimited budget and we could just fund anything we wanted, but there is a real debate to be had, not just about the effectiveness of certain approaches to promote internet freedom, but there is also a real debate to be had uh, to be had about You know whether the involvement of certain governments in the promotion and development of those tools is likely uh, to lead to crackdown on its users. You know when an anti when an anti-censorship tool is developed by a for-profit company, uh, it's not likely that you know governments in China or Iran will start going after its users. When an anti-censorship tool is funded by the U.S. State Department, the perception is likely to be different simply because. You know the reasoning would be that it's a tool that will eventually lead to revolution and has some political agenda behind it, right? So there are all those shades of gray which I think we often lose sight of when we focus on this abstract uh, and I think often overly ambitious concepts like internet freedom, and they actually end up constraining uh, what we can accomplish as much as enable it. Um, I think I'll stop here and then we can move to questions. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much Evgeny and uh, that was a really fascinating talk and also a very interesting book. Um, I'm kind of, I have two main questions and and so Mm -hmm. for my first question I just wanted to kind of reflect on your own history. I mean you talked in your talk and also in the book about your own history Mm -hmm. uh, working with an NGO and then becoming disillusioned Um, and I think partly the the book reflects this. It reflects this kind of idea that we have these expectations of the internet as a kind of democratic technology, which, as you're arguing, has driven our policies subsequently. So I'm curious about what you think are the reasons that we connect the internet in particular with democracy, um, when I think um, media historians often identify the same kind of Utopian vision um, as mm-hmm. as happening with uh, with many different kinds of new technologies. Do you think there's something specific about the internet that has led to this uh, expectation of it democratizing?
1: Um, n- no, I think uh, there is nothing specific about the internet, you know, which has led to such. Uh, Conclusions, but you have to remember that the emergence of the Internet uh, in the kind of public discourse was, again, immediately following the Cold War, right, and the end of the Cold War. Uh, and I think uh, there are still a lot of very powerful narratives that are still around about the role and the contribution uh, that technologies like the fax machine and the photocopier and Western broadcasting uh, made to the uh, you know, fall of the Soviet Union. And I think many people project uh, their assumptions that you know, it was the Xerox machines and the uh, you know, f- f- fax machines that brought down the Soviet Union. And you know, I end up actually quoting many of those in the book. And people make this automatic leap from that assumption, which I think uh, is probably wrong uh, to begin with, to, the, to assuming that uh, it is the Internet that will eventually undermine the system in, 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 in Russia or China. The other thing I think is very important is to look at where some of these narratives come from. Right? And many of them come from, uh, you know, obviously, from the media, uh, and uh, much here depends on who does the reporting. I mean, if you are a journalist based in uh, you know, Egypt, and if you work for BBC or CNN, chances are that many of the uh, you know, radical Islamist bloggers wouldn't even want to talk to you, you know, either because they don't speak English or because you know, they just don't want to talk to a Western journalist. Uh, so we end up with this, uh, you know, recycled narratives of bloggers always being on the side of, you know, uh, secularism, and democracy, and pro-Western values, uh, simply because those are the only bloggers who want to talk to Western media, uh, right? So there is that angle which I think uh, needs to be analyzed in, uh, you know, in, 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 in much depth. But I think the, the the bigger problem here is that we have, um, you know, we have a lot of activists, again, using the internet, right, and the government's repressing the internet. So the initial uh, assumption that many people make is that, well, if the internet is not undermining democracy, is not undermining you know, authoritarianism, why are so many authoritarian governments blocking it? Right? And that's the assumption that I think many people make uh, when they think about uh, you know, the power uh, the, the power of the web, uh, and, and this, I think, th- th- there is some truth to that logic. But we also have to re- to realize and to understand that uh, you know, m- much of the censorship uh, is invisible in the first hand. So we, we don't even know that it's happening when you know when you talk about things like cyber attacks. But the other thing is that. Uh, you know, many of them are moving away from a very rigid model where all they did was just to control the public sphere and control the public conversation. I mean, you look at a country like Russia, uh, I mean, uh, the Kremlin is very happy to create its own program and NGOs and create some kind of artificially controlled public sphere. I mean, they are very keen to create their own youth movements, create their own public chamber where intellectuals meet and debate issues. Uh, I mean, you, you have to view the power of the internet through that broader social and political narrative of what's happening in those countries and how they are adapting to capitalism, how they are adapting to the, you know, living in the global economy. And many of them, of course, have changed since 1989. Uh, and, you know, of course, our understanding of the political power is still rooted in that pre-globalization, you know, 1989 kind of discourse, where we just do not see that many of those countries no longer look like what they did in 1989.
0: So I think you've identified two really interesting threads, one of which is this association with of of Technology, or particularly technology that is controlled by the government as being because it 's controlled necessarily democratic and then the second one is um, follows on to my next question, which is the question about the narratives and you talk quite a bit about the sort of um, the metaphors and the narratives mm. that we 've inherited from one thousand nine hundred eighty nine and mm. these metaphors of walls and curtains um, and this idea that walls and curtains thus need to be circumvented, which mm. you know might be one of the reasons why we 're then interested in circumventing mm. uh, and circumventing what we see as barriers on the internet and then freeing the internet so what alternative metaphors would you then introduce um, if you if you think we should you know go yeah. get away from from walls and, uh, and mm. curtains
1: um, well I mean I talk a lot on the book about the subject of internet centrism which I think you know is the second uh, kind of intellectual idea in the book beyond you know in addition to cyber utopianism. I think there are kind of two Threads of thought which I think constrain how we understand the internet. One is making a lot of naive and enthusiastic and utopian assumptions about the power of the internet, you know, cyber utopianism. And the other one is, you know, internet centrism where we focus on the internet and thus miss the complexities of the local and political context in which you know, its logic manifests itself, if you wish. Uh, and the problem here, I think, is that whatever metaphor you go for, uh, it's just going to hide more than it will reveal when it comes to the internet. So, to me, any discourse, most discourse involving metaphors that try to describe internet control on a universal global scale uh, will probably be counterproductive because the strategies that you know, uh, Russia is going to use to control the internet will always be different from the strategy that will be used by China and Iran, in part because their political strategies and agendas are different. Right? So I just don't see uh, what value this you know, overarching metaphors aiming to describe the nature of modern internet control i will actually bring to the table. I mean we can go for local metaphors, we'll kind of mix the metaphors of internet control in China with you know its local you know characteristics, but then you look at something like the Great Firewall of China. Which is, you know, the worst possible metaphor I can imagine because, it, you know, it does incorporate the local imagery of, you know, the, the 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 Great Wall of China, with you know, the world firewall, which also unfortunately happens to rhyme with the world wall. So we end up with this connection between the firewall and the Berlin Wall. So I mean, I'm not at all sure that, you know, uh, increasing the number of metaphors. Uh, that we have in this discourse will help because they'll just be abused by you know policy for all sorts of, we, and they already are, you know just look at the discourse around cyber war I mean, and you'll see all sorts of metaphors from digital Katrinas to you know cyber 911 uh, to the digital Pearl Harbor which I, I think do not explain anything, frankly.
0: Right, but <laughs> and you're quite right, but I think it is it is our job as the people who are sort of w- you know working with these ideas to, to introduce some of these alternative ideas so I mean just for example could you come up with a more useful metaphor for Belarus?
1: Uh, well, I'm sure Thomas Friedman will come up with plenty of buzzwords that you know, we will all be using, you know, in well, the next 12 months. I, I, I have no doubt there. Uh,
0: <laughs> um, all right. So, so partly, I think underneath that, you're sort of arguing for local metaphors, local ways of understanding. Does that mean you think then that the internet should be governed and regulated nationally, as opposed to our attempts to kind of create an international framework for? Understanding internet freedom?
1: Um, yeah. would uh, no, actually, the argument about internet governance doesn't follow at all from, from, from my thought in the book. I mean, I'll, I'll try to answer it uh, if, you know, at the very end of my answer. But you know, the reason why I'm pointing so much to the importance of the local you know, political and social context is because there are different procedural ways in which you would want to promote internet freedom if you are sitting in an entity like the State Department. And I think the effort that we have seen so far has focused on empowering people who know uh, quite a bit about technology and may not necessarily know uh, quite a bit about China or Russia or Iran. Right. And to me, I think the Internet is actually very simple. Right? It facilitates collective action, and it makes it easier for people to access information. I mean, there is, you don't need a PhD to know those two things. Right? Uh, knowing how China or Russia or Iran will react to the Internet as a phenomenon and how you know, the Internet will shape many of the existing social, cultural practices there, you know, from nationalism to religion, does require probably a PhD or maybe several PhDs. Right, and uh, to me the question here is really on an institutional level: How do you want to structure, uh, you know, your State Department or your, you know, Foreign Ministry in such a way that you can still do something about the internet and not lose sight of uh, how it will affect Russia, or how it will affect China, or how it will affect Iran? I mean, if you look at a country like Russia, I mean, you cannot discount the fact that there are uh, very active nationalist movements in Russia that are getting stronger because of the internet. Right? You may argue that you know, nationalism is good for democracy in Russia, you may argue the opposite, but you need to be aware of that, and if you only view uh, you know, the politics of Russia through this model of there are bad guys in the Kremlin and then there are good guys who oppose the Kremlin and the internet will empower one of them. I think you're just missing the big picture. So, my argument really is not, you know, it, 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 it doesn't really even enter into internet governance territory uh, quite deliberately, actually, uh, in order for us not to lose sight of the important procedural arrangements that we need to have in place not to uh, you know, fall into traps like the Twitter revolution in Iran where I think the State Department did a very silly thing by publicizing its uh, outreach to Twitter. I mean they did the right thing by reminding Twitter that it has some obligations and not to do maintenance during such an important you know, historic period but uh, you know, they didn't have to look it to the New York Times, you know, it didn't have to make news, it didn't have to be publicized in that manner. And again, I think that happened in part because they thought that the PR benefits from this outweigh the cost to American foreign policy and to the internet, which I think was a very wrong judgment.
0: So part of this is just the um, resituating our understanding of the internet as something that belongs to politics in general and mm-hmm. isn't sectioned off into, this, into the sort of policy departments that are mostly speaking to Silicon Valley.
1: I, I think this is this is a good summary of what I'm saying.
0: All right. Well, I'd like to open out to the room for questions. Now, who, how many questions do we have overall? Um, okay, we've got quite a few. Um, and so I will start with the lady um, in the red on the aisle. And we'll go for the moment. We'll just take one question at a time, and then I might bunch them up later if we have a lot.
2: Um, I have two linked questions, Chair. The first comes out of your first question to our speaker. Um, uh, would, would you not agree that actually the reason why the internet has been hyped is to make uh, ISPs an awful lot of money so I would say it's been hyped to make them rich mm-hmm. um, and, and, and that's what's actually happened as, um, as we know because they are extraordinarily wealthy uh, companies the second question is re- slightly relates to that and it's about Google and Yahoo, um, and it relates to human rights, and the question would be whether you believe that any internet freedom is freer in the hands of the ISPs than it is with government, and the three examples I'd give is this. Obviously, Google's collusion with the Chinese authorities in suppressing Tiananmen Square initially and in going along with that. Secondly, Google's heist in deciding that it would digitize 11 million authors' books without asking permission. Mm -hmm. But as it relates to the Internet again, Yahoo, from my reading, actually got a Chinese dissident Mm -hmm. a long jail sentence for giving his name to the Chinese authorities. Mm -hmm. So two questions. Is it not pure greed that has been behind the Internet hyping? And secondly, are we any better off in the hands of the ISPs than we are with government?
1: Uh, Excellent questions. Uh, So, for the first question, uh, uh, I I fully agree. I mean, there has been a deliberate effort, I think, in many of internet companies, not just ISPs, you know, unless you want to look at Google and Twitter and Facebook as ISPs. I mean, there has been a deliberate effort to hype up uh, their own contribution uh, to democratization. I mean, I think Google's motto of Do No Evil was the best possible uh, PR strategy ever because now it it still deflects uh, the attention and you know many journalists still have a very benign view especially technology reporters in Silicon Valley you know where I spend some time now have a very inflated view of you know Google's contribution to humanity and they never ask any questions I mean if you really start digging into what Google is doing I mean how many of you know that it's a key contractor to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency you know a top spy agency in the US. Uh, you know, and then Google is doing a lot of work, which if it was done by any other company uh would you know raise a lot of eyebrows but since it's Google, everyone seems it's okay uh in part because they have you know proclaimed their commitment to human rights in China after spending four years you know <laughs> being very uh, okay with uh helping the Chinese government to suppress it and you know everyone treats them as uh you know a, a, a revolutionary force with Uh, you know commitment to to freedom of expression. I think we need to debunk those narratives and I do think that uh, a lot of PR money has gone into that. Uh, The problem here is that it's actually a trap for many of these companies themselves. I mean having Twitter uh, being perceived as the next radio for Europe in any country is not going to be to Twitter's advantage in the long term once they decide to monetize their presence in those countries. I mean, believe me, uh, if the government of China or if the government of Iran thinks that there is such a thing as a Twitter revolution, it will not positively affect Twitter's ability to do business in those countries. So in some, at some point, I think they'll just run into problems that their PR itself creates. Uh, with, this, with regards to the second question, uh, you know, I'm not arguing that it will be better in the hands of the ISPs. I mean, I think we do need to have uh, you know, uh, companies to uh, agree to, uh, you know, a certain a set of, uh, you know, uh, obligations. And uh, Yahoo paid, I think, dearly for what they did in uh, in, in China. And, you know, they were shamed, more or less, into setting up uh, this... Um, you know, and not setting up, but joining the Global Network Initiative and being one of its leading members. So I do think that companies change. I mean, there can be much more pressure, I think, coming from the Western civil society into pressuring these companies uh, to be more responsible. I mean, I don't think that there is a good reason why uh, Ericsson or Nokia Siemens should be supplying technology that can be used for, you know, surveillance uh, and mobile surveillance in authoritarian states, as it happens in Iran and maybe happening in Belarus where now there are reports that the government actually requested mobile operators to provide information on anyone who gathered in the public square on December 19th following the protests, you know, during the protests of the election. So now they're actually asking mobile phone companies who operate with technology provided by Siemens, uh, not Siemens, sorry, Ericsson, uh, for records of anyone who showed up on the square because mobile technology actually can uh, help you identify the exact location of, you know, people with certain phone numbers. Again, there is no reason why that should be happening. You know, Nokia, Siemens, and uh, Ericsson are saying that they do it because it's—it's it's, it's, there is no rule banning them from doing it. But I think there can be all sorts of you know ways to intervene by civil society and also by Western governments and you know by the European Union to make such experts uh, you know less likely and less common. A grey shirt halfway
3: up.
1: Uh, thank you. Um, two short questions. One, uh, do you think that the uh, delusive effect that you uh, ascribe to to the effect of the Internet also applies to satellite television, which has also been hyped as yes. this great vehicle of democratization, especially in the Arab world with Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya, both of which are fairly closely uh, connected to the governments? And secondly, do you think that perhaps it's not just that there's a delusion the internet can bring freedom, that, that, that the US State Department can bring freedom and democratization, because everything it seems to associate itself with becomes anathema to any democracy campaigner anywhere in the world, it seems. Yes. Uh, well, with regards to the first question, I think there is, you know, the, the, the delusion about satellite television is a bit less prominent in part because the expectations, I think, are lower. I mean, no one expects people to start. Organizing and mobilizing by, you know, hacking into the satellite TV station and sending messages to each other, right? So they, the, I think the expectations are much lower. Uh, and I think if anything, the delusion is not so much in the potential of Al Jazeera, but in the potential of, you know, channels that are broadcasting to Iran, you know, the channels based in America in LA and elsewhere that mostly broadcasting entertainment. You know, and there are a lot of people who think that, you know, the Iranian version of the Daily Show is the most hilarious thing ever, and that will eventually push people to rebel, you know, I, I haven't watched it, and I don't speak Farsi, so I have no opinion on this, but I do think uh, you know, and, and it's not even Iran, you have to look at the role that broadcasting to Cuba plays, you know, Western broadcasting to Cuba, which is watched by something like one or two percent of Cubans, and now you have the reports, actually documented in the book, you have uh, some interesting reports that you know the Cuban government has actually been, you know, screening the uh, pirate version of Avatar, uh, you know, national television, uh, you know, and that's also uh, broadcasting all sorts of American soap operas, in part because they know that it's much more entertaining than the boring political stuff that appears on the U.S. Funded Radio Marti, um, right? So again. We, we have to be uh kind of we, we have to look at what the governments are also doing to kind of counter the potential of satellite TV with regards to the uh state department's uh, delusions elsewhere um you know I think uh they it's hard to say. I mean, if you look at Obama, if anything, I, I don't see him doing much at all on the issue of human rights or democratization. I mean, he's been uh, awfully quiet uh, on uh, you know, uh, bringing, ch- you know, promoting or at least endorsing democracy in in the Arab world, for example, and his Cairo speech actually you know, went nowhere. Uh, so I think uh, there are many delusions, and, you know, if you compare them to their reaction to the Wikileaks, I think those delusions, again, become uh, much clearer than they ever were but you know, in no way am I suggesting that the State Department should stop supporting you know, freedom and democracy. I do a lot of work for you know, George Soros' Open Society Foundations and I see it actually on the board of the information program there which is thinking about how to use the internet and technology to promote democratic values and you know, open society values and I do think that there is a role for Western governments and foundations to play here uh, so uh, you know, I, I don't want them to start supporting it. I don't want them to you know, completely exit the field. I do want them not to cause more harm than good by their ill-thought interventions, and you know this is why you know, I wrote this book.
2: Right,
0: uh, one question right in the middle in the back.
4: Um, I'm from Iran, yes. and thank you very much for all your concern about. The thing which was going to happen in my country, but unfortunately because of the lack of media and uh-huh. lo- lack of support from the Western country, it didn't happen. So I think as we organised all our protest um, against uh-huh. the government and the Iranian regime um, was with the media and with the information Mm -hmm. which was available with the Persian um, form of television, Mm -hmm. BBC Persian, VOA Persian, Voice of America, or recently Euronews, the Persian um, television. Um, and We think that the media is necessary for revolution, Mm -hmm. to give information for the people, especially the media which Influence on, of, on people because Al Jazeera or Al Arabia is not a Persian language television. We mm-hmm. couldn't use them. Yes. But the other Persian television we, we used to organize mm-hmm. um, a lot of websites Facebook, Twitter. We organized all of protests against the um, regime with all of this media. Mm-hmm. My, my point is the media is necessary to do the revolution and to give people the freedom to go for the revolution.
1: Uh, No, I mean, it's it's an excellent point. I mean, uh, even if you look at some of the statistics I quoted earlier when I said, you know, Al Jazeera could only find 60 active Twitters in in, in Tehran, I mean, it actually shows you that even 60 people can make a great difference in terms of publicizing what's happening, right? So uh, in no way do I want to minimize the role that social media can play in terms of publicizing certain causes. Uh, You know, again, my concern in the book uh, is with how do you build a resilient internet freedom policy if you are you know a State department or if you are you know a, a Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, and, and and the problem here is that you know as much as social media helps people to uh, you know spread information about what's happening you can easily see the downside here because it will also exert pressure on decision makers to make decisions that may be populist but not necessarily health uh, you know healthy uh, with regards to long-term democratization I mean, some of us I remember, you know the images uh, that appeared, uh, you know, from Mogadishu uh, when American soldiers were shown, you know, through the streets, uh, and that, you know, a few months later caused, uh, you know, there was an outrage in the U.S. because all of those graphic images appeared on television, and eventually, you know, uh, American uh, Americans had to withdraw. Uh, you know from all that issue and and exit completely, I mean again, you can argue that there are ways in which social media will also exert more pressure uh, on governments to take decisions which look populist uh, i don 't know if it will be to the benefit of uh, you know, uh, of democratization necessarily, right? So uh, this is something that we have to balance. Uh, and yes, it does affect the cause of the, PD- of the people mobilizing on the streets, and it does help to highlight their cause in the global media. But I can think of many other causes that will actually hurt the cause of democratization if you think about it from the perspective of you know the State Department of the U.S. government. Uh,
0: gray sweater also at
2: the top.
1: I'm not so sure if you mentioned
2: this in your book, but they've been talking about using trade policy, yes. I mean the Americans, using trade policy as a tool for fomenting internet freedom. The idea is that the World Trade Organization has the GATS, which is service provisions that deal with non-discrimination in the availability of services elsewhere. What are your thoughts on the U.S. government using trade policy as a tool for promoting internet freedom.
1: I mean, it, again, it, 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 it sounds nice in theory. Uh, you know, the question is, would the U.S. then be held to similar standards when they go after Wikileaks and, and other organizations, right? I mean, there are many decisions which in, are taken in the U.S., which are not as drastic as the decisions by the Chinese government, but they also aim at limiting freedom and internet freedom and limiting, uh, you know, access to information, whether it comes to you know, again, internet piracy or even sites that aggregate, you know, links to uh, BitTorrent sites, uh, which the U.S. government aggressively goes after, even though it's not clear that they are breaking any laws. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure to what extent uh, many of the Western countries would actually want that uh, to happen. Uh, and I think once they start realizing the consequences of this, they'll have powerful domestic uh you know, from Hollywood and elsewhere that will be campaigning uh, against... Uh, who knows? Again, it's, it's, it's something that Google has been uh, trying to... Push for since, as far as I know, uh, August to September of last year. So I don't think there has been much thought put, to, put into this yet. The other point that I think is interesting here is that, you know, the argument that they make is that restrictions on internet freedom hurt economic growth. You know, and then you just ob- obviously look at China and it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, uh, unless you assume that without internet censorship, they would be growing at 20% and not 10 uh, so again, it's not to defend the Chinese system. It's just that you know some of the arguments they're making in support of that argument uh, need much more elaboration that is currently put into them.
0: All right, I'm going to collect a few questions because um, we are just about out of time. Um, so two questions there, and one here, and then we'll um, turn it over.
5: Um, I'm going to say something I don't entirely agree with, just to be provocative, but um, one of the things that I found very interesting from, from the book was, was this idea of um, not explicit filtering, uh, but a more social approach, a more PR propaganda approach that mm. you, you say is taking place in Russia. And I, there's, a, there's a wonderful or horrible I- image, depending on how you look at it, which is uh, the idea, why would a, a 15-year-old uh, politically active person bother to go out onto the streets and, and look for stuff when he can stay at home and watch porn? Um, and uh, at the same time you've got the, the government engaging in, in propaganda through the same medium that, that the uh, activists might be using now uh, a, a cynic might say that, that letting people watch porn is opening up your internet to, to, to be free and they might say that um, a government putting forward its dialogue in an open debate is actually some form of democracy um, mm-hmm. so I, I just wonder what your, your thought would be on that
1: sure, well I mean okay, let's we'll take just more. collect
0: uh-huh. a few
4: um, yep. Hi, my name is Shazar. I'm a digital project manager at Amnesty International. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I wanted to ask is regarding the timing. I mean, keeping in view how long internet and social media has been around, it's not even 25, 30, or 40 years. Don't yes. you think it's a bit early to call mm-hmm. the net a delusion? Yes. And if 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 it if you agree, then I would love to know that what made what was that tipping point which made you conclude that the net is a delusion. Um, so okay. keeping in view with these yes. two things. Excellent
3: question. And down here in the front. Yeah, thanks. Um, I have a question regarding a, the um, dictator dilemma. You seem to talk a, a lot about China and um, this is where I'm from. Um, I agree with you that um, there is a dilemma in terms of uh, a lot of authoritarian governments um, are worried that if they let the internet in, then the free information might um, provoke um, social instability and challenge their um, authoritarian rule. But uh, um, had, is is this assumption that um, information freedom does information freedom necessarily challenge the authoritarian states? And uh, for example in China, um, you seem to like people seem to overstate the effectiveness of the Great Firewall, but actually um, when you talk to Chinese university students you realize most most of them actually are aware of the Tiananmen Square um, event and uh, lots of the things that the government are trying to censor from uh, the um, general public. Um, But have you occurred to you maybe people choose not to know sometimes and even uh, sometimes people who know choose not to protest against it.
1: Wow. Uh, no, I think that's, that's um, enough.
0: There's three excellent um, questions. Thank you.
1: All right. So on the question of whether you know uh, even opening up access to porn is likely to lead to open debate and thus undermine you know authoritarianism, I think sure. You know, I, again, we have to uh, realize that many of those governments are changing as rapidly uh, you know as we can imagine politically and socially, and that their model of authoritarianism is not rigid and that it's not the same and changes by the year. I mean, Russia in. 2011 is different from Russia in 2001 and is different from Russia in 1991, right? And the same applies to China. And as I pointed out in my early answers, uh, I mean, there are very interesting experiments with trying to build some kind of a quasi state uh, controlled public sphere in Russia with all sorts of institutions that kind of walk and talk civil society but actually aren't, uh, right? So uh, it is through that lens, I think, that we need to understand the power of the internet, right? So, yes. Uh, many of the processes that were previously unavailable may now be available and people may be engaging in many more practices. It doesn't mean, uh, that, uh, you know, they'll have more rights when they show up at the voting booth, right? Again, uh, people in China probably didn't used to go on skiing trips 30 years ago, right? And now they do. I mean, does it lead to greater participation in politics? I don't know, right? Uh, Again, it's a much wider debate about the role of the middle classes and the role of capitalism and how that uh, you know, supports, or undermines democracy there or, you know, sectarianism there, but I think we shouldn't just view it on the internet-centric terms. We have to look at it from a broader kind of social and economic perspective and evolution that's happening in those countries. Um, the second question about um, the historical... Uh, view and whether things may get better uh, in the future, again, I think many people immediately uh, misunderstand my book when they think that the net delusion is some kind of an you know, authoritative statement that the web has failed right? I, I was doing with that title actually also, and I think it would have been even more pessimistic and it would have a, even more obscure references to other books uh, that were published with similar titles. but uh, again, what you have to understand is that the net delusion in the title refers to the delusion experienced by many policymakers and you know by intellectuals leaders who do think that, uh, you know, they uh, can uh, magically pronounce Internet freedom and then it will happen if only they invest enough money uh, to support bloggers and, you know, social networking sites. The delusion here refers to the naivete, uh, you know, the cyber utopianism and Internet centrism and the complete, uh, you know, uh, disengagement with the political side of the Internet. And the question to me (laughs) really is, uh, how do you build effective Internet policy? In, you know and how do you build an effective foreign policy that builds largely off the internet when so much is uncertain you know, i 'm not saying that you know I, I think that the internet is a bad thing full stop i right? 'm not saying that the internet is a good thing full stop of course we 'll never know. But the fact that we'll never know uh, you know should not preclude us from uh, you know, making policies that are as effective as they can be, and this is my problem at the State Department because many of them actually do assume that the internet is good or the internet is bad, and they work on those assumptions I- instead of examining how those assumptions are redefined by the political and social context on the ground and The third question uh, with regards to you know China and dictator's dilemma uh, you know uh, I- I agree somewhat that yes, you know, the uh, importance uh, of the Great Firewall may have been overstated. And, uh, you know, if you look at the usage of uh, censorship circumvention tools in China, I mean, those are the tools uh, like Tor and many others that people use to access uh, websites that are banned. It's a very low figures, you know. It's one two percent at most of people who use those tools of internet users, which suggests that the other ninety eight percent either don't know that there is stuff that's censored, or that they you know have no interest in uh, actually viewing it. You know, I can easily see that uh, the current political or cultural climate in China uh, may actually favor people who do not want to learn about human rights abuses and who would rather learn about, you know, best deals on shopping sites, right, and this is probably what's happening. Uh, And, uh, you know, but again, here you have to examine the processes that are taking place in those countries uh, politically and economically, and how they themselves are uh, getting uh, you know, acquainted and adapted to, to capitalism and not just focus on the internet itself. I mean the internet use here is more of a consequence than a driving factor uh, so
0: all right, if there are there any remaining questions? okay, we have um, three more questions um, down here in the front in the middle, in the cardigan, and in the hat in the back. And then we will turn it over for one final response. Uh,
3: thank you for an amazing talk. Uh, my question is this, that um, policymakers think about, you know, doing some sort of uh, Internet policy, limiting some sort of an access, but, you know, not taking into account the economic fundamentals of free markets, whatever. But aren't we missing the bigger point of equipping people with knowledge and skills to see the right information or whatever they perceive as the right information because there is already you know uh, unfiltered information there so isn't that what we're missing rather than limiting access
5: Um, we spoke a lot about the threat that uh, the NET might pose to authoritarian uh, dictatorships, um, but it seems that you know, um, the NET, as a free institution, uh, poses a threat to, to any form of authority, whether that be authoritarian government or simply the rule of law uh, exercised by democratic government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically of groups like Anonymous uh, and individuals such as the Jester, who are you know, mm-hmm. vigilantes taking down websites. Uh, of their own accord that they, you know, that they see aren't in the public good and are we going to see a backlash from you know, even our own western democratic institutions against um, you know, possibly legislative or otherwise um, against these individuals running amok in cyberspace
1: mm-hmm.
0: Final question in the back
4: Um, You kind of touched on this, but um, given that the commercial imperative of a lot of social media is actually gathering people's personal information, Mm. and that privacy is to some extent um, essential for freedom, wouldn't you say that um, as people give up their privacy to the internet that actually we're becoming less free?
1: Sir, can you repeat the last bit?
4: Um, would, Would you say that as we give up more information to the internet, through social media, that actually that we're potentially becoming less free, um, because privacy is is to some extent essential for freedom.
1: That's an easy one. Um, all right. So uh, with regards to the first question, uh, I think the broader issue you're putting here is uh, you know new media literacy and whether you know we actually can work on. Uh, you know, soft and hard tools and methods to actually equip people with the ability to understand what it is they're reading online. And again, I, I, I pointed this in the book, there is a lot of interesting, uh, I think, parallels uh, between our understanding of the power of the internet. Domestically in the West, and its power, you know, in places like China or, or Iran, you know, if you look at the uh, things that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama say when they talk to domestic audiences about the, the the internet, it's all very negative. It's all about the internet being a source of distraction and misinformation. It's all about you know uh, setting traps for you know parents. Who who now have to you know, struggle with their kids playing computer games online, I mean all of that is there, including in speeches by Obama and Clinton. When they go and address foreign audiences it 's all about you know, the free flow of information undermining a authoritarian rule and making government stronger uh, it 's all the exact opposite but uh, you know, if you look at uh, the power of the internet to inform people in Western societies, I mean you'll still see that you know plenty of people still believe that climate change is not happening and that uh you know uh, uh many of the uh you know practices uh you know in uh, related to health uh you know are not actually uh that healthy i mean and particularly here i'm talking about you know various uh, groups that oppose um uh oh god this word escapes me in english but uh, uh, uh what yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, you have a very active community you know, of people online who are actually uh, spreading the views that are the exact opposite, and many people who, who have access to through information who actually are not swayed by it, even if they look at it, right? So I, I do think that we need to work on this, and uh, one of the things I point to in the book is that the certain governments are increasingly using SPIN. Uh, in order to uh, set the agenda, it's no longer censorship. It's about you know dispatching uh, paid and hired commentators and bloggers to go and engineer uh, the necessary public position on a given issue by having you know ten bloggers write about it and then have everyone believe that this is actually truthful simply because it comes from bloggers and not from the newspaper, right? Uh, so I mean those strategies I think will become more prevalent in part because censorship does backfire often and lead to more and more people posting information simply because it 's been censored, so I think as an alternative to censorship, uh, spin will be dominant, and that you know we do need to have new ways to teach people about what 's truthful and what 's not online and some of that may be mechanical uh, tracking where information comes from and who is behind it, but some of it will probably need to be on the level of education and teaching people how to distinguish between what they write and you know think critically. a lot of those efforts are taking place in the universities already. Um, the second question. Um, Uh, you know, about the rule of law in the West, Uh, I think you actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, very very right in your assessment that uh, the web does pose a huge challenge to the rule of law in the West as well. Uh, And uh, particularly, you know, if you look at uh, the way in which, uh, you know, many of the threats, even if you look at a group like Anonymous, which you mentioned, I mean, it's transnational in nature. It's, uh, to an extent, very, uh, you know, hard to trace. Uh, and often you cannot go after them because they are in countries with uh, you know very shady uh, uh, you know legal systems. So you cannot actually go after people who are launching attacks on Western websites from. Uh, you know, uh, some countries even in the former Soviet Union because those governments wouldn't give them up. Uh, But I think there is an even deeper problem here that a lot of the data, and that brings me to the third question, a lot of the data that is being gathered, uh, that is posted to social media, is being gathered by private companies and that it ends up, and it's gathered by private companies because, you know, we all believe in the power of the market and we think that, you know, companies should gather any data that's publicly available. But then these companies, uh, you know, uh, data mine this data very effectively and then they end up selling it to the government. You know, and it's very common in the U.S. where, uh, you know, local and federal agencies... Uh, go to uh, various private companies that serve as, you know, data repositories of any information that's found online, and then they just buy data. And you know, and if you would think about it uh, independently, I mean, we would never want our government to go and gather everything that we ever posted online. But since it involves an intermediary, uh, you know, it's suddenly perceived to be fine because you know they buy it in the open market, and the companies do it because there are no laws banning the gathering of such data. But I think there are a lot of issues here that need to be examined. Correctly data clear. Uh, by people, you know, who do have strong views on privacy and who do have strong views about, you know, the uh, proper relationship between citizens and governments. Uh, Because, you know, the fact that it's done by private actors uh, does not mean that, you know, we want our governments to have all this information. And that's part of the argument I'm making in the book is that you know, it has become so effective. You look at at a country like China. I mean, there are marketing firms in China. They basically go around social media collecting data and then selling it to the, uh, you know, Chinese police and the Chinese police is actually on the record saying that well that's great. it has allowed us to shift you know nine people to other tasks. So now we only have one person centering the internet because all of the data comes from private firms. You know, and I'm sure that those other nine people have not been laid off. I mean, they have been shifted to more analytical tasks. So there is this question of efficiency, and this question of you know whether uh, the privatization of this data gathering uh, will actually stra- end up transiting governments on both sides. You know, both authoritarian, authoritarian, democratic ones. And I just think that we need to address that question.
0: Great. It's um, five minutes to eight, and uh, we've had a fantastic session. Thank you very much again, Evgeny, um, for your talk and for answering. Thank you N- so much, Ms. Kostinger. <laughs>